Welcome to Bible study today. We are studying covenants, covenants between God and man. And today's study is about covenant at Sinai. I think you'll find this fascinating. But before we get into this particular Bible study, I'd like to introduce our panel, who's really the same as last week. First of all, welcome, Helen. Thank you, Lynn. Yes, we are, I think, almost the same, but we're not. We're a week later and we're closer to the coming of the Lord and hopefully we're closer to him today in our study. Amen. And I'd like to welcome Brenton. Thank you, uh, Lynn. It's lovely and wet down here in the southeast and it's good to be on our panel. I'm really looking forward to this uh, subject, the Covenant at Sinai. I think it's going to be a very exciting Bible study. And I'd also like to welcome Ken. Hello everyone, great to be here. And our facilitator today is Jo, but before I welcome her, I'm Len, I'm going to be your host today, but Jo is going to be our facilitator. So Jo, welcome, and it's over to you. Thank you, Len. As always, it's good to be here. This morning's um, discussion will be, as you've mentioned, Covenant at Sinai. And I guess we've been looking at how God has been reaching out to mankind and drawing them to himself. As we know, this has taken the form of covenants and a lot of loving kindness because, as we know, the text says, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Through our discussions, we've been working our way through some of the significant covenants which form the backbone of the plan of salvation or, if you like, the steps that God is taking to bring about man's reconciliation and the return to paradise which we know was lost, and it retraces Christ's human genealogy and how the lion was chosen and preserved from destruction. We also know from Scripture that Satan, being aware of the danger of the promised seed or the promised one to his own kingdom and power base, has worked tirelessly to derail man's or mankind's redemption. The attacks were aimed at the line of the seed of the woman, beginning in the Garden of Eden with the murder of Abel, the righteous of the two brothers, and continues all the way and right up until the end. The Bible recounts this great controversy between good and evil, and in today's discussion, we see another attempt to destroy and bring to nothing of God's promises to Abraham. The plan was to destroy the people and see what would happen to the in thee shall all the world be blessed. But God rescues them from slavery with a mighty hand and makes a very special covenant at Sinai. We will be discussing God's amazing ability to rescue and save. We will also look at the significance of the Sinai covenant and how it does or does not relate to our redemption. So let us begin with prayer. And Lynn, would you like to start with, with a prayer? Yes. My dear Father in heaven, we know that you're a good God. We know that you care for people and love everyone despite how we react to you. And we see how you dealt with people in the past as we'll be studying today. Might we look to you for our redemption? We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit might direct us as a panel today to share your word in order that people might believe and understand and come to love you. So we ask for your blessing and pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Amen. Now, it's been a long time between Abraham and the situation that we find ourselves in during our discussion today. So 
I'd like to set a historical background for today's discussion and perhaps, Ken, you'd be able to tell us, how did Israel end up in Egypt? Were they popular with the locals? (laughs) Uh, I don't think they were, actually, but according to the story as written in the Torah, the Israelites actually live first in an adjoining land, Canaan, and then a massive famine comes, which is going for seven years, strikes the land. But because of Joseph's fine work helping Pharaoh prepare for the famine by stockpiling grain, uh, Joseph had predicted the famine in one of his infamous dreams. Pharaoh was in a perfect position to help everyone in the land eat when there was no food in exchange, of course, for their slavery. Now, in Genesis 47, verses 19 to 20, we read, All Egypt came to Joseph, saying, Both we and our farmland, take possession of us, our farmland, in return for bread. And we, with our farmland, will be slaves to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the farmland not return to desert. And Joseph took possession of all the farmland of Egypt for Pharaoh, and each Egyptian sold his field as the famine was harsh upon them, and the land became Pharaoh's. And another little interesting note in Genesis 46 and 38 to 33 to 34, when Pharaoh called you in and asked, what is your occupation, you should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Ochem, where all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So we can see that at this stage they weren't overly, uh, I think, liked by the Egyptians. And because we may read further on what happened, that uh, they grew to be a very large nation and Pharaoh was very concerned about them. But basically, that's how they ended up in Egypt. Yes, and we know that they were enslaved, weren't they? Now, that's that's how they ended up uh, during the Great Famine. They, I guess, Joseph, as you've said, Ken, um, came to the rescue of the people um, by setting up a a plan to store grain, uh, a very, very clever man. And so they came and lived in Egypt. Now, they were there for what? What would you say? How long were they there? They were about what? 430 years. Yeah, they were there for quite some time. And while they might have been popular at the beginning, um, you know, as the saviors of Egypt, there was a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And so their decline and their enslavement was gradual, I suppose. And so by the time we get to Moses's time, they are well and truly enslaved and probably building the, the pyramids, for all we know. Um, so, Helen. Tell us a little bit about Moses. Who was he? Well, Moses was a very, very interesting character. Um, He had, he started out, of course, in a little basket, which he was put into, which I find fascinating because at the time they were trying to get rid of all the babies. And God had his hand over him all the time. He he ended up being in uh, Egypt and he ended up being trained with the Egyptian education. And it was interesting that as he got older, I mean, he learned all the ways of the Egyptian, but as he got older, he actually left there. He, he reunited with his own people when he found out who he was. And he um, went into the wilderness. It was interesting in the wilderness that God actually humbled Moses. And, of course, he was also involved in the murder of an Egyptian as well. He was not perfect, 
but he was a man of the time. There was a burning bush experience and Moses being Moses, he had to go and investigate and um, God called him. God called him to be a leader. And it's interesting. I've often said to people that I suffer from MIS, which is Moses inadequacy syndrome, because when God called him, he didn't want to go. He put up all the sort of excuses because he felt inadequate. It's different to what he was when he was in, in the Egyptian courts. So here we, he's gone from arrogancy to being humbled and having this inadequacy in him. Anyhow, after that, God called him to be the leader of, he, would be, he became the greatest Jewish leader that set the exodus in motion. He was a prophet. He was a lawgiver. He was a recorder of the Ten Commandments. And he also wrote what we call the Pentateuch. But there was a few things about Moses. He failed to enter the promised land because he of disobedience to God. And he didn't always recognize and use the talents of others. But, but you know, God used Moses and he's a great example. He's also recorded in, in Acts and Hebrews and he's in the, the Hall of Faith in the Bible. That's to sum it up fairly quickly. But, oh, there's so much in Moses's life we could talk about. He almost didn't make it, Helen. That's right. That's right. But he was a man of God. I remember when he came down, when God gave him the commandments, and he came down, his face was shining. He had Mm. to wear a veil over his face. I I, I think that's that's a close walk with God. Absolutely. So he wasn't perfect, but God was able to use him. With God, he could accomplish miracles. But without him, he couldn't do anything. And, of course, God had, uh, had saved him miraculously from the edict to destroy all baby boys. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's well worth um, anyone who's really interested having a look through um, Exodus and latter chapters of Genesis for for more information and really getting to the nitty-gritty. Granton. Uh, Just quickly, Joe, um, the part that I always find curious about the story of Moses is before he goes to Egypt where he's in the desert, he actually gives five excuses. There are five things that he says, and God has an answer for each of them. And in the end, um, God says, this isn't an excuse anymore. You claim you can't speak well. Your brother um, Aaron is coming to meet you, and he can speak well. I will speak to you, and you can speak through him. In other words, whilst Helen is right in saying that he recognised his inadequacies, God doesn't see our our inadequacies as an excuse for not serving him. He sees our inadequacies as an opportunity to display his power. And I believe that that's what happened with Moses. And while you're at it, Brenton, perhaps you could give us a brief account of the Exodus and the events leading up to Israel leaving Egypt. Yes, just briefly. Moses had spent 40 years in the wilderness. He spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. We don't know who the pharaoh was precisely who was um, at the time. Some say it was Ramses II and some say Amenhotep and some say other people. Having been to Egypt and talked to the Egyptians themselves, I don't think they're totally clear on who it was as well that was um, pharaoh at the time. God sent him by means of miracles. You remember he had to throw his rod down and it became a snake. He put his hand in his coat and drew it out and it was covered in leprosy and then he put his hand in his coat again and it was whole. When he gets to um, Pharaoh's court with his brother, the process is basically Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? 
that I should let Israel go. I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to let Israel go. Now, one of the interesting things, Joe, and probably of interest to our readers or listeners, is this. According to the Egyptians, and I've talked to them about this, they don't believe that um, the Israelites built the pyramids. They believe the Israelites would have been involved in building cities, forts, and things like that, but not the pyramids. Apparently, the pyramids were built by a special group of people who actually lived on site. So um, I just thought I'd uh, defray that particular myth at, at this point in time. But well, that's interesting. Because Pharaoh refused to let Israel go, God had foreseen this in advance. He said to Moses when he was on the way, he said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, you could have a whole Bible study discussion on this particular issue. But basically, we had 10 plagues. The first five plagues, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. I think the fifth plague, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Then you go back to Pharaoh hardening his heart. Then in the eighth plague, God hardens his heart again. If you mix all of those things up, I think what's happening here is that as each display of God's power is given, Pharaoh's heart becomes harder and harder. He chooses to harden his heart, but it reaches a point where the effectiveness of the display that God is giving is getting to the point where he simply doesn't take any notice of it anymore. So finally, plague 10, the firstborn are destroyed from Pharaoh all the way down to the cattle um, in Egypt and Israel come out. Again, it, as we'll find out as we study a little bit further, it was God's mighty hand that brought them out because if he hadn't have taken the drastic action that he did, I believe that uh, they possibly could still be in Egypt. That's true. Yeah, I just wanted to pick up something Brendan said. It was very interesting. Uh, it's maybe slightly outside the sphere of what we're looking at, but, but I do find it interesting. I was doing some research in this uh, story yesterday, and apparently uh, going back to the, the, the Ramses II, I believe, the pharaohs actually ended up living in two separate parts of Egypt. Uh, one lived in the north and one lived in the south. And apparently the pyramids were built, I believe that's the north, I think I'm right saying that, and apparently the uh, the slaves, the, the Jewish people or the Israelites weren't in that part. Okay. The Israelites at the time we're talking about were actually refugees. Yes. They were kept separately where they lived in the Sinai Peninsula, I think it's called, but... They were used as slaves over this period of 430 years. So I guess some of them who were aware of the covenant that God made with Abraham were wondering, well, what's happened? Has everything gone on hold or has God gone on holidays and forgotten all about us? And they were forced labourers and... They really probably took on many of the values and ideas of the Egyptians. There's a nice big word that describes that. It's called a culturalization, where one culture over, overcomes or overwhelms another culture. So these people were from pastoral background. They were keepers of animals. 
and here they were working for the Egyptians. I imagine, like many refugees, they were not well thought of. Now, we think of refugees, they are people who have been displaced, but um, we often think of them as not being talented or anything like that, although that's probably a false impression. So these were the sort of people that the Egyptians probably despised because the Egyptians were a fairly elite culture and the Israelites a fairly basic type culture. So if I was going to look for somebody to um, be a manager of a business that I had or was intending to set up, I probably wouldn't have chosen any of these people. I'd consider them bits of dumkufters. <laughs> but that wasn't necessarily the case. So um, I suspect that they had lost their contact with God by and large. They were not people that you would look up to. Thank you. That was quite in-depth. But also that I, when I read scripture, I get the impression that they were very angry, um, that they were quite rebellious, and as you said, indoctrinated in pagan philosophy. And this anger uh, rises to the surface from time to time, you know, subject to mob mentality, rational actions based on primal emotion. I mean, they certainly weren't educated and weren't, um, I, I would suspect that they, many of them would have forgotten about the great Yahweh. Yeah, so as, as we have seen, Egypt was left in ruins, um, if you like, and Israelites, Israelites came away with precious jewels and gold that the Egyptians had begged them to take and leave because clearly they could not endure another plague. As Brenton put it, especially with the the firstborn, um, even of Pharaoh dying, uh, but God had shown up the Egyptian gods to be nothing and powerless, and their whole elaborate religious system was fraudulent. So we know that it ended very badly when this Pharaoh's firstborn son died, because um, don't forget Egypt was then the superpower, and the nations around them, you know, their knees must have trembled. Who is this God? Um, a question that Pharaoh himself had asked with his interactions with Moses. So, Brenton, who is this God and how does he portray himself to the Israelites based on some of the texts in Deuteronomy 32? Yeah, let me read that, um, Joe. I think it's worth reading. In a desert land he found her, or him rather, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft, the Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. This is a reference that um, it's called the Song of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 32, and he's eulogising in song the way that God had led Israel in the past. He, Rather than seeing God as a vengeful God, he sees God as a loving father in the sense of he uses the comparison of an eagle looking after its chicks. And uh, he also, in another place, Joe, uses the metaphor of a father carrying his son. In other words, the son is weak and um, ill and the father carries him tenderly. We see a very, very different picture of God, I think, 
Moses is about to die here, and it's rather interesting that um, right at the end of his life, instead of pointing out God's awesome power all the time, he is beginning to try and show Israel that God is a loving Heavenly Father. He is a protector. He is a sustainer. He is a lover above all things. He wants this intimate relationship with his people because of all that he has done for them. He wants them to recognize everything that he's done for them. And um, I think um, what better way could God project himself to his people than by using these two metaphors, an eagle with its chicks and a father carrying its son. And, of course, when you get to the New Testament, you remember in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus is telling a parable, he tells a parable about a father who had some sons and one son who had gone astray and how the father was out there looking for him. I I sense even back here in uh, the Old Testament and comparing it with the New Testament, the love of God as a father and as a protector is found all the way through Scripture. And I think that's something that uh, we can really trust in in 2021. And I guess this also has implications on, you know, if God so relates to his own people, um, that would have bearing on how we relate to those around us. Yes. Yeah, I love the way God uses the eagle and the parent, but particularly the eagle. I remember doing a, a sermon years ago about eagles, and um, I'm reminded here that God was literally encircling the children of Israel, yes. protecting them, you yes. know, like a parent eagle. And and it's interesting, if you look into the life of the eagle, how when the little ones are, are nearly ready to fly, they will prod them. They will prod them out of the nest and and then the, the eaglet will, will drop down. But the parent eagle will swirl, will come around encircling them and lift them up on their backs, take them up a bit higher and do it again. And that, that reminds me of what God did for the children of Israel. They kept yeah, falling yeah, yeah, and he yeah. kept on lifting them up and protecting them. And it, to me that also showed a long-suffering God. Yes. People think that he was a harsh God in the Old Testament, but this shows me that he was like an eagle, protecting, long-suffering and patient. And by this stage, they had been in the desert for like uh, three months. We're getting close to Sinai now, and there are evidences of his tender watch care and nurture. And perhaps, Helen, you could tell us what some of these things, evidence of his love for the people that he had drawn out of Egypt. I just wanted to ask a question. In view of the fact that God cared for those people back then, has he changed? He's the same God. He cares for us. And we must remember that. This is not just a historical study. It's something where we can see various attributes and aspects of God which still stand. God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. And although we might be far away from God, he still cares for us. And perhaps if there's somebody listening today who thinks, well, my life is very distant from God, God doesn't care for me, well, I'm going to say to you, that's wrong. God cares for you very much. And that's proven in the fact that Jesus came to die in order to save you. Yes, you mentioned it was three months in the desert. 
And in those three months, there was a vast amount of evidence that God gave the children of Israel. And I'd just like to sort of summarize that, you know, it was intervention time and time again. They'd been liberated from Egyptian bondage without having had to fight for their freedom. God was their warrior. God had led them to the Red Sea and then through the sea on dry land. And then God had saved them from potential calamity. But in the wilderness, he went on to provide miraculous food for them in the wilderness. As we're told in Exodus 16, he prevented their sandals even from wearing out while they walked over the rough desert stones. Man, I go through a lot of shoes myself in this world and to have them not wear out is just a miracle. God guided them every step of the way and there were miracles one after the other and we think to ourselves well how come they forgot them later because unfortunately their minds and their doubts came in and and that happens to us as well isn't it yeah absolutely so another miracle um that we mustn't forget is the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by night so that god's tender watch care you know he comforted them you know, by keeping them warm in the cold winter, in the cold desert nights and kept them shaded, if you like, from the desert sun. So I, yeah. I think God's evidence of his presence was constantly there. Whenever they looked outside their tent, they would have been reassured that God was with them. But God was trying to draw them closer to himself to establish a closer relationship with them. And um, he invites them in a special invitation in Exodus 19, 3 to 6, Helen, can you please elaborate on what this invitation was? Yes, happy to. Before I do that, though, when you mentioned they had God's presence all around them, we too have God's presence. Whether we choose him or not, we have a companion and he's there. But we can see even through nature the wonders of God as a creator God. And in our own life, he, he well, I know in my life, I live life more abundantly with him. So many blessings, so many miracles. And, and he guides and protects today. But in answer to your question, God wanted this closer relationship with his people. And in he, in Exodus 19, three to six, he actually invites them to be his people. First of all, he actually reminds them of what he did. You know, in verse four, he says, I've seen what I did unto, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles wings and brought you unto myself. And then he goes on in verse five to say, now, therefore, if you will, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant here, God designed a covenant that he offered to the people would establish the deepest, most profound and most intimate relationship possible between him and their God and, and them as his people. It was so close. He wanted them, but here he said the word if, and that's what we would call a quid pro quo. You know, something for something. God was saying here, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. It is so interesting when you look at it that that the Lord is actually saying, I will make you into this peculiar treasure. This is what I want you to do. He planned to make Israel his treasured possession. And I I think that should have been a very comforting thing for them. And then the next aspect was that God wanted to make Israel a kingdom of priests. For he says in verse 6, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. And he goes even further than that. He says, and 
a holy nation. And, and that's just amazing when you think about it. God wanted to bring them all together and be so close to him. He wanted them to be a people as holy as himself. Deuteronomy tells me that. But they were conditional. These covenants were conditional, as we found through the weeks we've been studying. And the people had to make a decision. But, you know, before that, he wanted them separated from the world to be a peculiar treasure, a holy nation, and the kingdom of priests. Yes, thank you very much. Now, what was the people's response, Ken, um, to this wonderful invitation to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, um, a peculiar treasure, a unique treasure in the world? So, what, Ken? What was what was the people's response? Well, the Bible gives us the answer to this in Exodus chapter nineteen and verses seven to eight. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them their faces and all the words which the Lord commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Now, on on the surface it appears, well, well, this looks really good. People are going to follow the Lord. But as we read some not too far ahead at time, that actually wasn't the case. Now, perhaps the people we were hearing a moment ago about all the miracles God had done for the people up until this time. And I sometimes wonder, did they perhaps get used to saying this and maybe it had lost some of its appeal? I'm not saying that's the answer, but I just wonder about that because we have these people, Moses has told them the words of the Lord, and they're going to be a special people under him, and he's going to look after them, and he has been looking after them for some time now, and yet they still do the wrong thing. Of mm-hmm. course, I'm sure if we were back in their shoes, we would be no different. So mm-hmm. the people says, yes, we will do all the things that the Lord has said, but unfortunately human nature being what it is. They, they were very quick to say all that the Lord says we will do, but they hadn't even heard the terms of the covenant. Helen? just like to add to that because in saying we will do it can be looked at from two possible motivations when you think about those words Uh, we will do relates to whether Israel would do what God had spoken out of their own strength and with the intent of obliging uh, obligating God to grant the covenant blessings as a merit earned by their own strength or they could have had the motivation whether Israel would obey the covenant by faith through the enabling grace mercifully provided by the Lord. And thus the experience of the covenant blessings as gracious gifts freely bestowed by God. The difference rests on the motivation of those who respond, whether ancient Israel or us today. Yeah, I think they had a long way to go, a long way Mm. to grow and Mm. understand what God wanted from them. Works or faith? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, uh, what was happening, I believe, what Ken read when he said all that the Lord has said we will do, I believe that it was probably based on a a certain degree of self-confidence. It shouldn't have been. I believe God was testing them. He was testing them so that they would come to the conclusion, rightly, that they were not capable of obeying what God had said they would do and they would continue to put their trust in him. Now, up until they've arrived at Sinai, there isn't a thing that has happened since Moses first came to Egypt that has been of their doing. They couldn't save themselves from Pharaoh. God did that. 
by bringing the plagues upon them. They couldn't cross the Red Sea. God did that. He opened the Red Sea so that they could go through. They couldn't feed themselves. They couldn't look after themselves. God did that. Their sandals didn't wear out. God did that. So here they are at Sinai. Everything that has happened thus far is God's doing. You would have thought that it would have, um, in making this comment, all the Lord has said we will do, you would have thought it would have occurred to them that, well, so far, everything that's happened has been God's doing. Um, maybe the answer should have been all that the Lord has said we can't do, but we trust you, Lord. Maybe that would have been a better answer, Joe. Perhaps, but I guess they had a lot to learn, and um, I don't think they understood. Slow process. Slow process. <laughs> Slow process, and that's the process that we all go through. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps if we just move on along, um, there were some preparations before the event, um, and in Exodus 19 there's, there's quite a, uh, you know, quite a, a list of things that needed to be done in order for people to be ready to meet their God. So, Lynn, perhaps you could give us a very brief outline because this isn't the real focus of our discussion, but just a bit of a background. We're studying about covenants. All the other covenants that I'm aware of, there was no preparation actually made like this one, the covenants with Noah, the covenants with Abram and, uh, and so on. There was no preparation, but here, There was a lot of preparation to be made because God wanted the people to realize that this was a very important covenant, a very important list of regulations, perhaps the wrong word. But anyhow, God wanted them to realize the solemnity of what they were going to experience. And they had to wash themselves and be clean, wash their clothes, And for a period of a couple of days, no sexual relations were allowed to happen so that they would realize that this was something very, very important. Now, there's probably other things I could mention, but they had to be prepared. Then they would have to assemble around the Mount Mount Sinai. They were not allowed to go past a certain place. And when God would speak the words of this covenant to this whole assembly of people. Brenton, uh, Lynn has done such a great job of setting the foreground of it. Now, on the day, on the actual day when the people were gathered before Mount Sinai, can you give us some insight into the manner of the proclamation of the Ten Commandments and perhaps comment on perhaps is there a structure? Does there appear to be a structure? And, and what does God begin with, if you like? Well, basically, the um, situation here, Joe, is on the third day, as Len said, there was thunder, lightning, uh, there was smoke. The whole of Mount Sinai was covered in smoke, and um, it says the mountain quaked greatly. And then there was the sound of a trumpet, which grew louder and louder and louder. And as Len has pointed out, the people weren't to come anywhere past a designated distance around the mountain, I think God is not only demonstrating his power here, I think he's demonstrating his holiness. The fact that they could not touch the mountain or stand upon the mountain, it's it's almost equivalent to way back in Exodus 3 where God says to Moses, take off your sandals for the place that you're standing on is holy ground. 
I think God wanted to, first of all, before he gave them his law, he wanted to impress upon them, Joe, his holiness. And the Ten Commandments, we, we don't generally tend to look at the Ten Commandments in terms of holiness, but in actual fact they are. Uh, the manner of the proclamation starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now that term alone tells you the Lord thy God, if you're using the King James, or the Lord your God, if you're using modern translation. That terminology alone talks about an intimate relationship which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God doesn't give them the Ten Commandments without reminding them that they wouldn't even be here. They wouldn't even be hearing the, the restatement of these Ten Commandments if it weren't for his power and his mercy and his love. So rather than looking at the Ten Commandments as do's and don'ts, which many people do, I think we should look at them in terms of love. Um, if you go back to where God brings them out like an eagle, looking after its chicks. The Ten Commandments actually are a hedge of protection around Israel. They're not just a collection of things that you must do or things that you mustn't do. They're a hedge of protection to give you a quality of life that nobody else has got. And I think this is the, the setting, the foundation as to where God gives the Ten Commandments to Israel. I guess God is also introducing himself to them. It's like, I am the giver of, yeah. of this covenant. I am, you know, in case you were wondering, I am the yeah. Lord thy God. And he goes on. He introduces himself, and perhaps many of them would have had lost most most of their knowledge of him. So, And he's also audibly speaking to them, isn't he? And yeah. So they can actually hear him. It's not something that Moses said, well, you know, this is what God told me. They actually yeah. heard him proclaim these yeah. words. Mm. Now, Ken, after God introduces himself as who he is, and, of course, we know that the Ten Commandments are a revelation of God and his character, he goes on to define how he's to be worshipped and what is appropriate and isn't. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that, Ken? Well, there is actually quite a bit involved, I believe, in this. And I'm, I'm going to kick off with Psalm 150, and it says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds, according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound with flute and harp, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and pipe, praise him sounding cymbals with loud clashing cymbals. Now, the Lord is to be praised in all different ways. And the Bible, of course, tells us that the very first thing is that we need to love God. That's the very first commandment. And we obviously have to praise him. And he has also set a particular day aside to praise him, which is a it's a, a real special, special day for God that he has initiated for mankind to worship him, not just on that day, which is the Sabbath, which is actually Saturday, according to Bible, but we have to praise God every day and give thanks to God every day in all that we do and say, and also by treating others in the right way is also praising God because we are representatives of God but in everything we say and do, somehow this is a way we can praise God. Thank you, Ken. So God has he's given, set aside a sacred time set apart for worship, which we know 
is in the fourth commandment. He also mentions thou shalt have no other gods before me. So he, you know, I think in a previous text, there was no other God with him. You know, um, I think Brenton, you were, you read the Deuteronomy texts, but then God goes on to talk about the parameters of what is good behavior and how we treat other people. Helen, tell us about the other six commandments. Okay, very, very quickly. The first four is love to God. And and as that flows into us for the letter L, the word of love, it then flows out to other people. And God's very specific. But so is Jesus, by the way. He reiterated the same commandment, but he enlarged on it. So he said, on your father and your mother, and we can check on that in Matthew 10, 37. He goes a bit further. Exodus 20, 13, you must not murder. Jesus goes on to say, but don't even be angry. Exodus 20, 14, you must not commit adultery. And Jesus said, anyone who looks after a woman or with lust has already committed it. Exodus 20, 15, you must not steal. And, and it goes on. Don't, don't tell lies against your neighbor. Don't covet what your neighbor has. All very, very good counsel. And nowadays we even still take them for granted. Um, you know, killing and stealing are not good things to do and is also frowned upon by our laws. But cheating on partners and disrespecting our parents, including other people, are not considered to be good attitudes to exhibit either. What a different world we would live in if we if we took God's words into our heart and followed through with them through his power. Yeah. Lynn, why do you think God gave us the Ten Commandments? commandments? Were they necessary? Please elaborate on this. You know, I mean, these seem like common sense to us, don't they? What a question. We could spend days talking about this. To summarise, I'd like to say that the Ten Commandments are a statement of rights, human rights and rights of God. They are a statement of how people should live, a statement of protections, Were they necessary? Well, some people say that the Ten Commandments are only given to the Jews, but that's a load of rubbish. I can give you a number of texts uh, from the New Testament which talks about Christians needing to keep the Ten Commandments. They were necessary. In fact, if there were no perfect law like God gave these people, I don't know how society would go. It would be a real uh, a shamuzzle. Now, of course, there are some people who think that those who keep the Ten Commandments are trying to earn their salvation. That's not correct. We keep the Ten Commandments because we we love God and we want to do what he says. Amen. Jesus said to the Jews, as recorded in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. In other words, the way we get eternal life is through Jesus. And we know that he died to save lost humanity, to take our punishment. Now, over there in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, there's a statement that many people have got completely wrong. And I'll read it to you. It's actually chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, 
nailing it to the cross. Many people think this refers to the Ten Commandments, but it's not. It's separate. It's the handwriting of ordinances. It's all the regular rules and regulations regarding the ceremonial law, the, uh, the sacrifices of animals, etc., etc. That's never been nailed to the cross. The Ten Commandments stand forever. And those who think they can do away with the law must realise that if you do away with the law, you do away with a definition of what sin is. And if you do away with sin, well, who needs a saviour? So that argument to me is totally spurious. No, the Ten Commandments are a rule for society, for individuals, for harmonious society and respect towards God. Mm. I'd just like to add to that, uh, Lance just said. I believe uh, I look at it as that they were given as a code to live by, to honour God and man. Absolutely. Like Lynn said, it's to protect the rights of those around us. Lynn, if we didn't have the law and order that we have, and much of it is based on the Ten Commandments, we would have anarchy. We know what happens when a law and order breaks down. We see plenty of it on our television screens. And so thank God that there is a, there is a law, um, and many of our laws do follow the outline of the Ten Commandments, but a lot of people don't know that and they take it for granted. They think that, um, you know, it was man's imagination, man's wisdom that has uh, devised these. Now, the word grace comes to mind. How do we understand obedience to God in the context of salvation by faith and grace? And does the command to obey the Lord somehow nullify the concept of salvation by grace? There are some texts in Romans, Brenton. Perhaps you could yes. elaborate and, and just tell us a bit more about this. There's a few of them there, Joe. I'm going to look primarily at Romans 7, verse 7, which is one of a number of texts. It says this because it explains it actually quite well. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, would I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not cover. The first thing that it does here is it reveals it's talking about the Ten Commandment law, because thou shalt not covet, of course, is one of the Ten Commandments. One of the questions that you've um, asked us here is, was there something wrong with the law and does grace nullify the law? There is nothing wrong with the law, but the law is powerless to save us. This is where the grace aspect comes in. All that the law does is point out that we are sinners. Now, you could use an illustration that we all know well. Those of us who um, shave, uh, those of us who are men who shave, when we look at ourselves in the mirror each morning, we see that there are certain blemishes on our skin. Some of us have lost hair. Others have other issues, wrinkles and all the rest of it. Looking in the mirror doesn't change any of that. It simply reveals your state and that you need to do something about it. Uh, there are skin wrinkle creams. There are supposedly hair restorer products and all sorts of things that you can use these days to overcome these deformities. But when you come to spiritual matters and the law itself, the law simply reveals that you're a sinner. It doesn't give you the means by which you can escape the condemnation of it. What it simply does is tell you that you're a sinner. 
that you have fallen short. What God's grace does, and um, the term for God's grace is a term that we discussed a few weeks ago in ministers' meetings. It's called prevenient grace. And prevenient grace is grace given to us that is totally undeserved. God knows that we cannot keep his law. But we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort on looking at our obedience aspect rather than looking at the aspect of, well, God wants us to do these things, but we're not capable of doing them. So what are we to do? Romans 12 is another text, um, Joe, that simply says that um, we are be to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our minds have to be changed in order that God is able to work in us. I think in another place, Paul says that it's God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Our part in being obedient to the law is to surrender ourselves so that God is able to work through us. He is able to replace our character with his character. He's able to magnify his character through us, and others will see that a faulty human being like me is transformed by the grace of God. That, I believe, is exhibit number one that God wants in the world. He wants people who are transformed by his grace. They are keeping his law not as a means of salvation. They are keeping his law because his character is being revealed in them. So clearly grace doesn't nullify the law. It's there for the purpose of of showing the blemishes, if you like. So people sometimes talk about the old covenant being a bad covenant and there's a new covenant. What went wrong with the old covenant, if you like? Yes, okay, well, Romans 9, 31 and 32 says this. I found it really interesting. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now, the stumbling stone, Joe, as you know, was Christ. They stumbled at Christ. Christ came as a suffering Messiah. He came as a suffering Saviour. They were not looking for a suffering Messiah. They were looking for an all-conquering hero. And they stumbled at that, and they did not recognise that they could not keep God's law, that they were totally unable to do it. They thought that they were well on the way. That's why you had the Pharisees and all the rest of it. And then Jesus comes along to a guy called Nicodemus, and he says, unless you're born again, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Mm -hmm. that message is applicable to us in 2021. Each of us has to be born again. Those of us on the panel have to be born again. Those who are listening to this Bible study, each day you must be born again. That's the only way to the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. See, many many go to church and go through the motions. Um, it yes. could be me or you, in order to prove our goodness before God and satisfy His requirements. Um, and we look to ourselves, um, to our own self righteousness, thinking that that is good enough. However, as you have said, we will never be good enough on our own. It is only by grace that we are saved, and that is through faith in Jesus, which is also a gift from God. Helen, we've already touched on um, is there a a lesson for us to be learned? The Ten Commandments were the terms of the covenant, but what was God's role in this covenant relationship? And what had they all missed, missed all along? And can we fall into the same trap? I guess we've mentioned much of this, but have you got some new insights 
Well, I just found this very, very interesting, this whole text, and I'll go as quickly as I can so you can still understand it. It was interesting that God was the one that was initiating it all. God was the one doing it all. I believe that they missed the part where God was the one. God was enabling. God was protecting. God was guiding. And and I think we can fall into that same track. But when I when I was reading through Exodus 6, 5 to 8, I noticed in verse 6, it's it starts off in verse 6, that I am the Lord. And I thought it was interesting because he says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I'll be your God. And it finishes again in, and it goes on, I'm the Lord your God, brought you out, the burdens of it. But it finishes on verse 8 with the same words, I am the Lord your God. You know, I am the Lord. And for me, I looked at that and I summarized it by saying he rescued. He rescued them. He rescues us. He freed them from slavery. God redeems us from sin. He delivered them. He delivers us. He became their God. He becomes our God. He accepted them and he accepts us. And he led them to the promised land as he will lead us also into new life and the promised land. Thank you. Ken, we see that in the New Testament. We're moving to the New Testament now. And um, the Jews who held the law in very high regard came to ask Jesus' opinion about which was of the greatest law. And I imagine that they wanted him to enter into some sort of debate with them. And what was Jesus' answer? Basically, the Jews, as you said, they were uh, high keepers of the law. I think more to uh, impress the, the people round about rather than anything else. And when they asked him about this question, Jesus said to them in Matthew uh, 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he was getting away from the Jews trying to keep the law such as mankind has been unable to do, but rather focus on the Lord and put him first before anything else. I guess Jesus also summarised our obligation to God and our neighbours so that any action which impinges on what was what would be anything but loving is wrong. Jesus summarised and at the same time broadened the law by peeling it back to the principles that govern or are indeed the bedrock of the Ten Commandments, namely selfless love. And we know that these are principles of heaven and are everlasting. So some people might say, as we've already mentioned, that the covenant made at Sinai, this was a a set of Jewish rules, but we can see that um, it wasn't just the Old Testament. It's an enduring covenant that has been made, he has made with his people for all time. Now, in Revelation 22, Len, there is another interesting um, emergence of the word commandment again. Can you please tell us something about that? All right. Revelation 22 Uh, verse 14, it's expressed differently in some versions, but the version that I like best is King James Version, which says, Blessed are they who keep his commandments, that they might have right to the tree of life, and may go through the gates into the city. Then it talks about people who don't keep the commandments. Now, some versions, they put their, their Blessed are those who wash their robes. That's kind of the next step. That is, those who accept Christ's sacrifice for their sins. So for those who say that commandments have been done away with, they've got it all wrong because here it says, Blessed are they 
to keep his commandments that they might have right to the tree of life. In other words, to receive eternal life that God has planned. Okay. Well, I guess it's time to conclude our discussion. The covenant God formed with Israel at Sinai was a covenant of grace, having been having given abundant evidence of his gracious love and care by an extraordinary deliverance from Egyptian slavery, God invited the nation into a covenant with him that would maintain and promote their freedoms. Although Israel responded in the affirmative, they lacked a true faith motivated by love. Their later history indicates that, for the most part, they failed to understand the true nature of the covenant and corrupted it into a salvation-by-work system. We need not follow Israel's failure and ignore the marvellous grace which has been extended to sinners. Perhaps just one little short couple of sentences from Steps to Christ. We do not earn salvation by our obedience, for salvation is the free gift of God to be received by faith, but obedience is the fruit of faith. Perhaps, Brenton, you would like to close close our discussion with a prayer? Yes, certainly. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for this study of the word today. I pray that um, the promise of the Old Testament in Ezekiel where God promised to take a heart of stone out of their hearts and replace it with a heart of flesh, I pray that we may recognise today in 2021 we cannot obey your commandments and obedience to your commandments are not our way to eternal life. Our way to eternal life is to accept Christ's sacrifice and ask him to keep the commandments through his indwelling spirit in our hearts. May our listeners, may our panel, may each of us have the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our lives, both to will and to do with his good pleasure. We thank you, Lord, that you have enabled us to do it, but only by your grace. Everything is by your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today, listeners. One little final comment before we finish. Some of you might say, well, what about the new covenant? Well, if you read the new covenants, God says, I will write my law in their hearts. He hasn't done away with the first covenant. It's just being expressed differently. Anyhow, we really appreciate your company today and we look forward to uh, having you join us again next time. So until then, keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.